If you will, turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. So we finished the first segment of our two-year-long study on the life of Jesus with looking at the prayer life of Jesus. And so what we want to do this morning, uh, eight weeks from today, believe it or not, will be Easter Sunday. And so we're going to take the next seven weeks leading up to Easter, and we're going to look at the seven different passages from the Gospels concerning what Jesus said from the cross. Okay, what Jesus said from the cross. So this morning we want to look at chronological, and we're going to do these in chronological order. And so this morning, as you look at Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33, we will find the first of those sayings or cries uh, from Jesus from the cross. Scripture records these words. And when they came to and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, This is going to be the text of our focus, verse thirty four. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Son of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him which read, This is the king of the Jews. The 1986 movie titled The Mission tells the story of a Jesuit priest named Gabriel who is commissioned to build a mission in South America for the Guarani Indians. On the way, Gabriel meets a man named Mendoza, played by Robert De Niro, a mercenary who has been a slave trader. His slaves have included the Guarani Indians. Mendoza is also trapped in a prison of guilt and regret for having killed his brother in a jealous rage. Gabriel attempts to persuade the guilt-stricken man to accompany him to the Guarani village where he has committed so many of his sins. There's a way out, Mendoza, Gabriel says. For me, there is no redemption, Mendoza replies. God gave us a burden of freedom. You choose your crime. Do you have to choose? Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare do that? There is no penance hard enough for me. But do you dare try it? Do I dare? Do you dare? To see it fail. As they began their arduous journey, the priest straps a huge sack of armor on Mendoza's back. To reach the village, the men must travel over cliffs and waterfalls. 
The journey is nearly impossible for someone with 100 pounds of armor strapped on his back. They finally reached their destination, and the Indians were excited to see Gabriel. But as they recognize Mendoza, it becomes a moment of truth. One of the Indian men unsheathes a knife and holds it to Mendoza's neck. Mendoza remains calm, prepared to receive the punishment he deserves for his sins. Then, in an unexpected portrait of grace, the Indian removes the knife from Mendoza's throat and cuts the pack of armor free. All watch as it falls from the slave trader's back and clanks down the mountainside into a ravine below. Mendoza, shocked and confused, begins to sob uncontrollably and clings to the Indian man's feet in contrition. In today's text, Jesus takes his abstract teaching from the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5.44. We know this. We've heard it all of our lives. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he brings this abstract teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, and he brings it into the realm of the actual. The teacher brings his point to life by praying for those who are taking his life. Jesus did more than direct his followers to forgive. He demonstrated it in the most vivid way. And so this morning, what I want us to do is examine this portrayal of forgiveness. So first, we need to look at the cross. We need to look at the cross. Christ's crucifixion paints a portrait of humans at their worst and God at His best. The cross should always be a reminder. It should always be a portrait of man at his worst and God at his best. The Creator had come to His creation, and yet they knew Him not. The Lord of glory moved into humanity's neighborhood only to find rejection. Eyes blinded by sin did not desire nor behold His beauty. His birth foreshadowed His human experience. Just as no vacancy signs filled Bethlehem, so too did the hearts of those He came to save. Herod's infanticide decree launched a series of murderous plots against the Savior, culminating in man's most torturous form of punishment, the cross. The invention of the cross reveals the depths of human depravity. Never had man's depraved mind revealed its depths until this moment. There he hangs, nails in his wrist and feet. Placed there, not by a court, but by the crowd. He stood condemned, not by prosecution, but by the people. Waves of pain surging through his body, yet he remained silent. No cry for pity, no call for relief. Will he die in silence? You see, crucifixion causes, caused all men before Christ to either blaspheme their those who were crucifying them, or they begged for relief from those who were crucifying them. 
But on that day, Golgotha's hill experienced a reaction that was totally foreign to its onlookers. Neither blasphemy nor begging came from his lips, only a benediction. I want you to listen this morning to this cry from the cross. I want you to listen to the cry from the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No longer might the hands, those hands, minister to the sick, because they are now nailed to a cross. No longer may those feet carry him on errands of mercy, for they are fastened to the cruel tree. No longer may he engage in instructing the apostles, for they have forsaken him and they have fled. How then does he occupy himself in the ministry of prayer? What a lesson for us to learn this morning. A question has often been asked uh, uh, to me of those who find themselves unable to do ministry in a way that was once common to them. No longer can they leave the comforts of their own homes because their bodies will not allow that. Various ailments have brought life to a grinding halt. And I've often been asked by those who once served the Lord with great fervency and passion with their physical bodies. Why would the Lord leave me here in such a condition? Perhaps your existence is to engage in the ministry of prayer, whereby you might possibly accomplish more in this duty than by all your past service. Just because you cannot go like you once went, and, because, and just because your capabilities are not, once, are, are not what they once were, does not mean that you are not useful in the kingdom of God. It might just be that your best days are these days. Because whereas you were too busy to get into the school of prayer... Now circumstances and age and health and physicality has brought you to a place where you might be as useful to God as you have ever been in your life. Do not disparage such a ministry, but remember your Savior. He prayed. He prayed for others. He prayed for sinners. And He did it even in His last hours. In praying for His enemies, not only did Christ set before us the perfect example of how we should treat those who wrong and hate us, but He also taught us never to regard anyone as beyond the reach of prayer. If Christ prayed for His murderers, then surely we have encouragement to pray now for the very chief of sinners. 
As Christians, we should never lose hope. Does it seem a waste of time for you to continue to pray for that man or that woman or that wayward child of yours? Does their case seem to become more hopeless with each passing day in prayer? Does it look as though they have gone beyond the reach of divine mercy? If so, then remember the cross. Christ prayed for His enemies. No one is beyond the reach of prayer. Jesus set an example for us while also showing us the efficacy of prayer, the effect of prayer. We see the effectiveness of Jesus' prayer in the conversion of 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. I base this conclusion on Peter's words that are here on the screen. Look at Acts 3, 17. Now, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as also as did also your rulers. Peter's use, uh, Peter's use of ignorance corresponds with Jesus' statement, they know not what they do. Here then is the supernatural explanation of how 3,000 souls were converted underneath a single sermon. It was not Peter's eloquence, but it was the Savior's prayer. Did you know that Christ prayed for you and me long before we ever believed in Him? I want to show you this beautiful verse. You may want to commit this to memory. John chapter 17 verse 20 is a phenomenal verse proving that Christ long before you were ever conceived in a womb had been praying for your spiritual conception. John chapter 17 verse 20 says this, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Let me read that to you one more time. I do not ask for these only. John chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, this morning you didn't get saved without somebody praying for you. And nor will there ever be a person ever saved without the ministry of prayer. Let us follow our Savior's example and intercede for our enemies. Our prayer may not save 3,000, but what if it saved one? We must cease with our condemning wishes and begin praying unceasingly for those, especially our enemies, who don't know Christ as Savior. Consider for a moment those 3,000 saved under Peter's preaching. Do you believe they would have experienced salvation without Jesus' prayer? Possibly. But let's stick with what we know for sure. Jesus prayed for them and the Father answered. Oh, you can speculate all you want, but let's just stick with the facts. Jesus prayed and they were saved. How about this this morning? Will someone be saved without you praying for them? That's not the question. The question to you and I as Christians is why are we not praying for people 
to be saved when we know that our God answers that prayer. Jesus never once reacted, reacted surprised by his treatment. He came into the world knowing that its inhabitants were by nature children of wrath, living according to the passions of their flesh and under the control of the prince of the power of the air, fully knowing what awaited him, he came. When Jesus says they know not what they do, He's not saying they're ignorant of what they are doing. They knew full well what they were doing, right? Because they are the ones that cried what? Crucify Him. If they knew, then why did Jesus say they don't know what they do? You see, their ignorance pertained to Him, the one they were crucifying. They knew not that it was the Lord of glory they were crucifying. The emphasis is not on they know not, but on what they do. Blindness is not an, an acceptable excuse on the day of judgment. Those who crucified the Savior witnessed His majesty because the Scripture said of those people, they had said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. If His words were not, reli were not a re reliable enough witness... What of his miracles? For they were well known and were attested by many. Their rejection of the Son of God bore full witness once and for all that the carnal, the fleshly, the worldly, the unconverted mind is at war with God. This tragedy did not cease at the cross, but it continues today. Daily, multiplied millions neglect and reject God's great offer of salvation. Weekly, people throughout our world attend gospel services only to spurn His merciful invitation. They shun Him with no fear. They are like those in Luke chapter 19 verse 14 of which the Bible says, We will not have this man to reign over us. Let me put forth Pilate's question to us today. What shall you do with Jesus, which is called Christ? You will either reject Him or you will receive Him as Savior of your soul and Lord of your life. Is there one amongst us this morning who has shelved this all-important consideration? For years you have steeled your heart against Christ. Close your ears to His appeal and shut your eyes to His surpassing beauty. You know not what you do. Blind you, blind you are to whom you have sinned against, yet you are excuseless. Today, God's Spirit, whom you have resisted in past days, comes once again speaking, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Blinded sinner, your sight awaits you today. You can leave here this Lord's Day singing that famous line from that famous hymn, I, was, I once was blind, but now I see. Well, what about us? What about those of us who were blind, but now we see? What should we take away from our text today? Well, it leads us to our last point. 
Not only do we need to look at the cross and listen to the cry, but if you have been forgiven, you need to live cross-centered. You need to live cross-centered. What do you mean by that, Brother Jason? Back to the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord taught His disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Above all others, Christ practiced what He preached. So here on the cross, He perfectly exemplified His teaching of the Mount. In all things, He left for us an example. Mark carefully the words with which our text opens. Back one more time to Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And I just want you to notice the very first word. It says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. Then, the verse which immediately precedes it reads thus, And they came to the place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him, and with the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Then, when man had done his worst, then, when the vileness of of the human heart displayed itself in climactic devilry, then, when with wicked hands the creature had dared to crucify the Lord of glory, he might have uttered awful curses over them, he might have let loose the thunderbolts of righteous wrath and slain them, he might have caused the earth to open her mouth so that they had gone down alive into the pit. But no. Though subject to unspeakable shame, though suffering excruciating pain, though despised, rejected, and hated, nevertheless, he cries, Father, forgive them. Folks, church, that is redeeming love. That is love that suffereth long. That is love that is kind. That is love that beareth all things. That is love that endures all things. Amazing love. How can it be that He would die for me? Christian, it is because of this very act that you are forgiven this morning. Romans chapter 4 verse 8 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The believer is in Christ, and their sin will never again be counted against them. Anybody in here run, run up a pretty good debt of sin in their life? Huh? How good does it feel when financial debt goes away? How many of us have said, boy, if I ever get out from underneath this debt, it'll feel great. Well, I want to tell you what, when we paid this, when we paid the debt of this church off a couple of months ago, that's a feeling like no other feeling to know that we no longer owe anyone anything. Not to have that debt hanging over us. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We had a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And he no longer counts our sin against us. In the accounting room of heaven, your account says, Paid in full. 
stamp. Paid in full. Paid in full. And guess what? The moment you got saved, everything in the past was paid in full, but don't lose sight of this. Everything in the future was paid in full. This is our place or position before God. In Christ is where He beholds us. And because I am in Christ, I am completely and eternally forgiven. So much so that never again will sin be laid to my charge as touching my salvation. I am out of that place forever. So I'm just going to end right here with the testimony of the Word. So just let this wash over you. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in, tr- in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Note what Christ has unified, His resurrection with my forgiveness. If then my life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, then I am forever out of the place where the charge of sin applies. Thus it is written, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How could there be if all of our trespasses are forgiven? Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who declares us not guilty, who declares us innocent, who declares us debt-free. Dear Christian, may we join the writer in praising God because we are eternally forgiven. Furthermore, leave this gathering of the redeemed committed to forgiving and praying for those who need forgiveness. Is there any greater work of the Christian than to forgive? I don't believe there is. And every time forgiveness seems to be difficult, every time it seems to be difficult for for you to pray for those who are against you, for those who are your enemies, for those who are doing ill will against you, or saying all manner of falsely against you, then listen, if that is your place, and you say, Brother Jason, I find it incredibly difficult to pray for those who treat me in such a manner, then look at the cross, listen to the Savior, and then you may live a life of forgiveness. Because if Christ can forgive you, then you can forgive others. Listen, He died to forgive you. He's not asking you to die in order to forgive someone else. He is simply asking you to look to Him for the necessary enablements and help and resources that will empower you through the Holy Spirit to live a life of forgiveness.
as we close this morning, who do you need to pray for? Hmm? Who stands in need of your prayers this morning? What enemy of yours have you not prayed for, but you simply wished in your heart of hearts their demise, their downfall? How many of us have seen those who have done ill against us fall into a pit and rejoiced in their situation? How many of us have said, you know what, that's what they deserve? Based on what they've done to me, that's exactly what they deserve. Listen, that's karma. We don't, we're, we're not karma. We're Christians. We don't want people to get what they deserve. We want people to experience the mercy and the grace of God. Why? Because we have experienced the mercy and the grace of God. Praise God, God didn't give you what you deserved. And you may have said, I've gotten some pretty bad stuff in my life. Trust me, you still have never gotten what you deserve. Maybe today more people would come into the pool of baptism and make a profession of faith and confess Christ as Savior and be plucked out of, the, plucked out of hell and placed into heaven if you and I simply would begin to pray for our enemies. Father in heaven, in these moments ahead, you have asked us to do a very difficult task, but you have not asked us to 